Um, so we're in Genesis chapter 16, as was just read. Tyler, uh, if you're new, we're in a series through the book of Genesis. And last Sunday, Tyler uh, preached a message on Genesis 15, and he walked through uh, what's called the, the covenant, uh, the cutting of the covenant with uh, God and Abraham. And if you remember, he began the sermon by outing everyone in the congregation uh, that we all struggle in one way or another to believe, trust God's promises, walk in forgiveness. Um, and so one of the things he emphasized, or the, the emphasis of his sermon, was on the idea of God showed himself to be approachable and personal. And it was beautiful to see you know, Abram get to walk through this experience and and uh, get to, to uh, just fully embrace the covenant there that God made with him. Uh, but then this week in Genesis 16, uh, Abraham loses his ever-loving mind, right? I mean, he, he, it, it's a high point, spiritual mountaintop, and this valley's a deep one. And he just, I mean, it's more like a cliff. He went, it wasn't a slow decline. It was right off the cliff to the bottom of the valley. Um, and it's, it's Abram basically uh, making, decision, making a decision to do something uh, in his own wisdom and insight uh, and ignoring God's promises and plan. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Uh, you have chosen to ignore or, or uh, sidestep what God wanted to do or was going to do or showing you or the path forward of wisdom and insight. And you said, I could do that, but I think my way is better. And you did that only to fail miserably. Um, I think we probably all have at least small instances of that, maybe some large ones. Uh, my big one in my lifetime, I, I probably have several, um, but we don't have time for confession today. Um, but I will tell you, my, uh, if you're new, I was, I was truly, truly, and I always say truly, I was truly a terrible student in high school. Um, really, really bad. If you're around the church, you know that. Uh, but it really boiled down to the, the pinnacle, the pinnacle of my, uh, or maybe the bottom, the bottom of <laughs> my, uh, my plan and purpose. I, I just, school was, was difficult. I, it's not that I didn't read or study, but, um, you know, I, I, I found that, like, doing homework and papers and studying for tests and stuff really got in the way of my very active life of relaxation and partying. Um, and so... Uh, it came down my senior English class. I had uh, goofed off uh, the entire year. I think I got a D for my first semester, my second semester. I, I, I like to actually, it was weird, I actually like to read the books they assigned, but I just was like, I don't, I don't like writing uh, papers. And so uh, I remember to this day, it's funny to remember something that long ago, that I chose not to do a book review on a book I'd read which seems really dumb in retrospect. I had spent the, <laughs> the amount of time required to read a book, but then I'm not going to take the shorter amount of time of writing the review. Uh, and I just thought, well, you know what? Final's coming. I'll just make it up on the final. And it turned out, as I got really close, I found out about a week before graduation, a couple days, maybe four days before my final, that I, um, I had to uh, get an 88 on my final to pass the class. So uh, I, did, I, I, I did, in true fashion of my life at that point, I waited till the last evening to begin to study an entire semester's worth of material. Uh, I studied, I stayed up a little late that night, I went in the next day and got an 85. And it turns out you have to pass your senior English class to graduate. So I did not graduate. While my friends were spending their summer relaxing, partying, and enjoying their social life, I spent that summer going to summer school and working at a grocery store. So that was, that was the bottom. Um, 
Fortunately, the man that's standing before you today is not that man anymore. God has done a mighty work in his life uh, that I'm here today before you. Uh, but that was my idea. It's like, oh, I'll just bypass what I should be doing, and I'll just kind of work my own system here, my own way out of this. And that's exactly what we see Genesis doing, or sorry, Abraham doing in Genesis 16 here. Instead of trusting God, who's the approachable and personal God he had just proved himself to be, it's the writer of Genesis very intentionally puts this story right after. He doesn't add any fluff. It's like Genesis 15 right into Genesis 16. Um, and, and instead of trusting God, Sarah, his wife, comes up with a plan and a scheme to get an heir, right? For Because God had promised an heir, but rather than trusting God and following the God who'd made the covenant with them, they, uh, Abram and Sarah have this plan to, to um, go around God's plan. And so the, what we're going to see today through the passage is that trying to achieve God's ends through our means is never a good idea. Trying to achieve God's ends through our means is never a good idea. And we'll see this as we walk through. It's kind of written like a three-act play, if you will. And so we're going to walk through each of these acts. I'm going to make the points personal to us so because we certainly do these ourselves, and that's where we'll maybe be able to kind of glean or sort of root ourselves in the story better. What we see is that first, the first point, we sidestep God's way to make our own. We sidestep God's way to make our own way. At the beginning of Genesis 16, Sarah had had no kids, right? After this crazy dramatic story of chapter 15, uh, Abram had actually begun chapter 15 with the statement, I am yet childless, childless, shall Eleazar of Damascus be my heir, who was a, a distant relative. And the Lord said to him, back in 15, No, you will have your own son. And it says, and Abraham believed him, and the book of Romans tells us it was counted to him as righteousness, right? This is a great story. And after this tremendous promise and this dramatic covenant ceremony, after that, there's still no baby for Abraham and Sarah. Uh, And at this point, maybe Sarah is 65, um, and she probably, when the covenant was given, she probably thought, that's a long shot, right? <laughs> God, it's a long shot. But now, by this point, maybe 10 years later, she's 75. And she's beginning to, as the days and weeks and months and years are going by since God made that promise. She is struggling to believe, struggling to actually trust that God will provide a child. And so... She rightfully recognizes at the beginning of chapter uh, 16, verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She rightfully recognized it's not just about biology, that the Lord had a plan and a purpose, and it's certainly not about biology when you're 65. (laughs) There is something uh, supernatural that has to happen, but God has not done it. So then she comes up with her own plan. Verse 2, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarah said to Abram, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, this seems like off the rails, and you're like, man, this just does not seem, uh, it seems like a harebrained idea. But you have to understand her desperation at this point. It's not just her age, uh, but her situation in that cultural moment. In that culture, you have to understand the, the, the role of, of women. And she actually says this in verse 2. Uh, she, she emphasizes it's to build a family. That's your role. If you're a woman, that's what you were there for, to bear children and build a family. Full stop. That's it. Um, and 
in that culture, that meant children were a woman's capital in the world. So if you're a woman, and, and, a, and, and in many ways an honored woman married to a very powerful, wealthy man, and you have no children, you are, you're failing, right? You're failing in your uh, part of the, the, the whole deal. And so she, there's no doubt she felt disgraced. She felt worthless. Um, but in that ancient world, uh, you have to understand also that what she did was not as harebrained as we might think. Now, today, we, if, if, uh, if a couple is childless and then they just bring in a third party into their marriage, <laughs> that, that seems really bizarre. But in that culture and time, it was not unusual to have a woman serve as a concubine. Um, in this case, uh, he actually did take her as uh, Hagar as his wife. Um, but before we sort of looked down and then realized that it was very common, very normal in their culture, if, you, if you're having trouble, trouble with infertility, which still happens today, um, you, you may go to see a doctor. That's our technology. That's our means. And their way, it was to go and use a, a surrogate or, or concubine. Now, if you have your ears attuned to what's already we've already read through in Genesis, you might have been tipped off to something very, uh, very. This sounds like an echoing of another experience. Chapter, um, verse two of chapter sixteen, sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden. The language there and and the the Hebrew is actually straight up the same in some of the words and phrases. Is meant to echo Eve's temptation. And then having her husband, Adam, giving him some fruit, and he ate. And and, in Sarah's case, she saw that this was her plan. She she, uh, decided to do it, gave it to her husband, or this concubine, and he did what she offered. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 17 says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife... And that, so that language there in, in chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 2 says, listened to the voice of Sarah. There's lots of parallels here. Um, now, I would say this, this is not a statement on husbands listening to wives. The truth is, uh, uh, wives, and, and even through the rest of Scripture, there are women and wives who have who a lot of wisdom and insight, and I, as a husband, can testify that I am a much wiser man by listening to my wife on many, many things. Um, but in this case, it's Abram is acting like his ancestor Adam. His wife has suggested a plan that sidestepped God's plan and charts a human-driven path. Just as Adam took the fruit from Eve, she handed it to him, he took it, didn't say anything, and he ate. Sarah was given Hagar, or gave Hagar to, uh, to Abram, and he took her and didn't say anything. This is deplorable. He should have recognized that his wife was struggling, right? He should have recognized this is heavy on her, heavier on her than, than me, um, but I'm the one that just went through the covenant ceremony with God. I should be reminding her. I should be encouraging her. I should be fostering her and, and, and walking with her through this so that she can believe the Lord, but he doesn't. He becomes passive, just like Adam. And it's a reminder that Abram is not the serpent crusher that God promised to Adam and Eve. His uh, spiritual life is a roller coaster. If you go back just a few chapters, you remember he, was, uh, he had just gotten, in chapter 12, the initial covenant from God, initial promises, and then uh, he quickly begins to, uh, he goes down into Egypt, he lies about his wife to Pharaoh, she ends up in, in Pharaoh's uh, harem, right? 
And then uh, the next chapter, all of a sudden he's bold, and he's got a lot of faith, and he divides up the land with Lot, and then goes and rescues Lot, and then worships and gives a 10% of what he has, which is certainly not earthly wisdom, gives 10% of what he has to uh, Melchizedek. Um, and then last week, of course, the high point of the covenant. I kind of like this because this is a lot of, a lot of epic uh, stories in, in uh, history don't necessarily paint the characters very realistically or, or uh, with real struggles. If, um, this, this makes this text ring a little bit true. Abram, the father of the Jewish people, right? The father of the nation of Israel, he, he, was, he struggled. He was not perfect. He made dumb decisions just like you do and just like I do. Now, if I, as I mentioned, the cultural um, role of women was singular. Um, but I wanted us to see one of the things that was driving her here um, is that, that it, it wasn't just that this was a good thing to have a child and important thing. It was basically the, the, uh, the way of saying to women in that culture, this is the only way you matter. The only way you matter as a human being is if you have a child. It was woman, women's significance. And it was oppressive. And I hope you can see how sad it, it was um, and how, how, must, how hard it must have been for, to be a woman in that culture, especially one who struggled with infertility. But you know what's interesting? Is that our culture does the same thing. We've just flipped the script now. Many of you um, women have gone through uh, some of the best universities in the U.S. and in Boston, and you've come through, and you were told the whole time your significance is how far you can get in your career how many degrees you can get, how many promotions you can get, what position you can get. It is all about achievement. That's your identity. And I would argue you've got that on one side, sort of defining you should be this. And if you're not that, something's wrong with you. And then on the other side, there's like some traditional culture that's still powerful here that says a woman has to be you know, all about her children. She has to be at home. Any woman who doesn't stay at home with her children uh, is, is, is somehow failing, right? And not only do you have to stay at home, you have to be an absolute rock star. Like, you have to have it all together. Your home has to be spotless, and you have to have uh, your, you know, when they're two, they need to be doing, uh, quoting Shakespeare. When they're three, doing calculus, you know, and if they're not, that's on you. That's your fault. You have failed as a mom. It's a weird pressure from our culture that pushes on women in those ways. I think it's funny, uh, Marie Kondo, many of you may have seen this. She now has three children. And her cleanliness has gone out the window, she admits. <laughs> it's amazing how self-righteous someone with no children can be, right? But you should just keep your house tidy and clean all the time. I'll let her borrow a few of your kids, right? Truth is, every culture assigns to men and women what is good, what is worthy, what is significant. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the Christian faith, is that it, uh, that it offers a different place for your identity. It offers a dis- different place for your significance. It offers what, what the Bible would describe as a righteousness, a goodness, a wholeness, a wellness, a peace that does not come from things you achieve, and so therefore you're not defined by where, ways you fail or struggle. You get an identity, you get the security, you get this righteousness from God through Christ alone. It's interesting here, though, that there was no doubt Sarah, Hagar, and probably Abram were going along with this plan because it just made sense in the moment. 
And let's face that, that's kind of sin for us, isn't it? Sin makes sense in the moment. We look at it and it's like, this is, sometimes seems like a tiny decision. Like, oh, it's just a little decision here, a little step here. But that seems to make sense. That's the best path right now for me. And we end up down the road. We can feel a lot of pressure from our culture um, to, to sort of seek that flourishing life on our own rather than to trust God. I spoke to um, a couple hundred college students this week. Um, got a Part of my reason I went down to Florida was to speak on Tuesday night, and uh, it was such a great night. Um, I, love, I love talking to college students. I got to talk to them about mission, uh, about reaching the nations with the gospel and leveraging their lives. Um, one of the things that near the end that I brought down on to them was to just challenge them to, to take sin seriously in their lives. That while they're in college... Here at this point, 18 to 22 years old, go ahead and begin to recognize you're going to have a lifelong battle with sin. Recognize it and start, start going to war with it. Start fighting. Start taking steps. Don't make peace with your sin. Um, and one of the ways we make peace with our sin or one of the ways we struggle with sin is when we try to go around God's plan and promises. It's an attempt to lead a flourishing life where we shove God into the backseat of the car and invite him to ride along with us. We still like the idea of God, but we kind of like more like the idea that we're driving the car and God's with us in the car, right? The old saying goes, if uh, the bumper sticker's like, God is my co-pilot. I saw the updated one that says, God is your co-pilot. Uh, switch seats. <laughs> he should be driving. You should be riding. Um, and that's a very real sense of we don't want to trust God with our lives. So I want to ask that question, what ways are you being tempted today to bypass God's promises and substitute your own plans? Trying to achieve God's ends through our means is never a good idea. So we've seen the, 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 the plan to sidestep. Now secondly, I want us to see we face the fallout of our plans. This is inevitable. It always happens. Maybe not immediately, but it inevitably happens. When we try to usurp God's plan, we step away from God's promises and God's provision in our lives, we enter a dangerous space, and the results can be destructive, whether immediate or long-term. To no one's surprise, at least, hopefully not a big surprise, a plan for a wife to give his, her servant as a sex slave to her husband did not work out well, right? I mean, I know we see that, but it did not work out well. And by the way, just to, to reiterate with you, these circumstances in the scriptures, this, like this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. You'll hear people say, oh, the Bible believes in polygamy, and the Bible supports slavery. It, it doesn't. It recognizes it as a reality. Um, and then I can't even begin to unpack all this right now, but what you'll find if you study the scripture is God doesn't always say, we have to end this thing today, but he introduces the kingdom of God, which always undoes these things. It's like he introduces a virus into this broken system, but it somehow fixes the system over time. And so he, uh, what we see in this passage, and I'm thankful for Kevin DeYoung for pointing these out, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he, he says, Hagar is proud, Sarah is jealous, and Abram is passive. So Hagar becomes proud. Um, we, we don't know this for sure, but based on the way the text is written, it, it may have just been one time that Abram actually slept with Hagar. Um, and what happens? Lo and behold, verse 4, he went into Hagar and she conceived. 
Now think about that for a moment if you're Sarah. And think about that for a moment if you are Hagar. You've been a servant. You've been the second-class citizen, right? And, and uh, Sarah and Hagar have uh, been together since the estimates are around Egypt. Abraham and Sarah had tried for 50 years to have children. There's no secret that Sarah uh, wanted to be a mother. There's no secret that God had promised that they were going to have this child. And yet Hagar all of a sudden very quickly becomes, the, becomes pregnant with her husband's child. And so Hagar becomes prideful. Look at verse 4. She looked with contempt on her mistress. What you can't notice here, because it's in the Hebrew, the way that the word contempt, it's the same word used back when God promised to Abram in Genesis 12, 3, whomever curses you, I will curse. The word contempt there is basically is the same word in the Hebrew, I will, whoever looks on you with contempt, I will curse. So she's doing what God has said not to do. She's begun to look on on God's chosen couple with a contempt and a pride. And of course, it creates division. And she suffers. Sarah, and secondly here, is jealous. We can only imagine that, right? The, The jealousy and anger and bitterness that must rise up in a woman's heart after seeking children for so long and then kind of coming up with this plan but certainly maybe sarah in the back of her mind is thinking maybe this takes a few months to happen but based on the text it's like the first time and all of a sudden hagar's pregnant and now all of a sudden that reality begins to sink in she's pregnant with my husband's baby and it was my idea Verse 5, she looks at, and, and now, and Hagar has been looking at, hit, at her, right, with contempt. And so she senses that. She sees that. This, this woman is now prideful and, 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 and is, is cursing her in her own heart. Verse 5 says, Abraham, basically, Abram, this is your fault. I gave you to her uh, to embrace, and it worked, and now she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, you would think at this moment, Abram, again, would step up to be a leader. He's gotten the covenant, promises of God. He could have said, he could have stepped in and tried to make things right, but he says, no. He says, she's your servant. I'm not going to make the decision. I trust her to you. And, and in a sense, he's right. In that culture, if, if you were an individual and you had a servant that was your servant and you were the one with rights to it, Abram had sort of distant authority, but she was the one who was responsible. And so uh, Abram washed his hands and stepped back. He says, do what you want with her. And verse 6 says she dealt with her harshly. We don't know exactly whether that was physical, emotional, verbal, but there was abuse that happened. So often this happens in life, doesn't it? The victim becomes the victimizer. The person who has been hurt, what do they do? They turn around and hurt others. It happens again and again. This is a cycle. We always have to kind of be checking in our own hearts as, as a followers of Jesus when, when we've been hurt by someone else that we don't just use that as a license and, 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 and step into this position as a victim that allows us to act in whatever way we want Because just because someone sinned against you doesn't mean you're going to respond in a Christ-like way to that. And in this situation, Hagar's contempt 
uh, beget Sarah's wrath. To be Sarah, to be fair, Sarah, uh, Sarah must have been hurting. Nothing. She, she wants nothing more than to have a child, and the scheme she had backfires. Right? Backfires. She's got to be carrying some deep pain and hurt. And in this situation, Abram is passive. Her husband, the one she's been walking with, the one who received the promises of God, doesn't care for her well, doesn't lead well. You see, when we go our way, God in his love will often let us reap what we sow. When we forsake him and we pursue our own plans, instead of looking to him, our best laid plans become our worst case scenario at times. And it doesn't have to be, like I said, it's, this is a life, like huge life decision. Every time you sin, you're sidestepping God's plan. You're ultimately saying, this is the way right now for me. And it always costs us. It always creates devastation in time. But God loves us, and so he allows us to experience that. You see, God doesn't, occasionally he will. I I will have to admit that. Occasionally in my lifetime, God has just come through, despite my bad decision, has come through and like rescued me from repercussions. Just in his goodness and grace. But oftentimes he'll let you experience it. Because he wants you to repent. He wants you to come back. He knows that our efforts apart from him are doomed. Trying to achieve God's ends through our means is never a good idea. Look for peace apart from God, and you might find a moment of peace. You might find some moments of peace, but you will not find the peace your soul longs for. You will not find that place of rest. Look for joy apart from God, and you might find glimpses of joy, but not the deep, abiding joy that your soul longs for. Look for life apart from God, and you might find life-giving moments, but you'll never find the everlasting life-giving relationship you were actually created for. I mean, that's what, you know, C.S. Lewis uses the analogy of, of uh, you know, playing in mud, mud pies. Uh, we're, we're playing in, in mud puddles, thinking this is the greatest thing in the world because we don't understand that there's a, a whole vacation by the ocean that's available to us. Right? And that's what God is offering us. And sometimes he'll let us just play in those mud puddles till we're dirty and realize this isn't so great. And that brings us to the final point. He lets us struggle, but we are met by God with grace and hope. It's available to us. He does not force it on us. Even in Hagar's situation, as he meets her, right, um, she ends up having to receive it and, and respond in obedience. But she could have just kept going in the direction of Egypt. Despite everything coming unraveled, God doesn't show up and wag his finger. He doesn't just, uh, you know, slap her hand and, and punish everybody. He wants to remind everyone that we belong to him. We are introduced the first time in the Bible to a figure in verse 7 that's this uh, messenger of grace, this messenger of mercy, the angel of the Lord. 58 times the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament, and another 11 times the angel of God. It's not just a representative of, of Yahweh, of Jehovah God. This is uh, sometimes what, what it's pictured as, but um, the, the, the authority that this angel speaks with is not simply a representation and oftentimes does not speak as if uh, God has given a message to deliver, but speaks as God. And what we'll see in this passage is that 
Um, this is not a representative of Yahweh, but a representation of Yahweh. Verse 10 says, the angel of the Lord, look at the progression. The angel of the Lord said to her, and then verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, and then the end of verse 11, because the Lord has listened, and then verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Do you see the progression? That At first it's the identity of the angel of the Lord, and then it became the, the Lord, the way that she uh, framed out. And the scripture frames out who he was. For this reason, some have suggested this is a pre-incarnate Jesus, which it might be. There's certainly indications of, of um, the, this is not an angel or another being representing God, but a representation of God himself. Notice the blessing that he gives to Hagar in verse 10 and 12. It's not identical to the Abrahamic blessing. <clears throat> and you notice Ishmael is a whole new line, not the same offshoot, from, but an offshoot from Abram, not his uh, blessed line. He's going to have a complicated history, it says. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, and he'll be against everyone and everyone against him. God foretells great difficulty, but there will be a family. Verse 10, uh, it's not identical and yet similar. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So Hagar is not the promised line, but she is connected. And the Lord calls Hagar's name here when, when the angel of the Lord comes. He actually calls her Hagar. I don't know if you've noticed it yet, but Abram and Sarah do not refer to her by her name. She is only the servant, the slave, right? So God knows Hagar's name. He honors her, and then it says to her, your blessing, your salvation in earthly terms is not going to come by you seeking your own path out here, but by you going back, submitting yourself to Abram and Sarah. That must have been a hard word, right? She certainly knew what was back there, but God called her to go back. And her obedience became her blessing. And she does as the Lord commands. And then one more sign of God's grace and blessing here in verse 11. He says, uh, God says, you will have a son, you shall call his name Ishmael. Which, if you look at your footnotes in your Bible, uh, maybe it says the name means God hears. Just like the Shema in Deuteronomy uh, 6, hear, O Israel. Uh, the Lord our God. The word here there is the same word in Ishmael's name. It's a very important connection to the God, the same God who hears. The Lord's had mercy on Hagar and heard her cry for help. And notice on ver in verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God of seeing. Again, the Hebrew here, El Roy, uh, means God of seeing or God who sees me. What an what a awesome interchange in this passage. This is, this is literally, by the way, the only person in the entire Bible that gets to give God a new name. There are other names, but they are names tied to places. Like uh, Jehovah Jireh, right, uh, is tied to a place. This is a woman naming God, the God who sees me. How crazy was it? She goes home. Abram has a child. He names her obediently. I think he must have believed that Hagar or God convinced him that Hagar had encountered the, the Lord. And so he names his son Ishmael, God hears. What a reminder from that day on 
Abram got to see his son God hears, and he keeps remind, he keeps being reminded, I should have listened, right? <laughs> or I should have known that God hears our cries. He heard Sarah's cries, and we didn't need to do this. Some of you may know that Galatians, Paul brings in Hagar and Sarah as we wrap up. He brings Hagar and Sarah in and says they're two mountains. Um, he's using two women and their children to point to the law and to the gospel. It's not her fault, not but Hagar is simply in this case in this story as a child um, symbolizing doing things our way. Sarah is doing things God, God's way. One is the way of works. One is the way of grace. The way of works that, and, and Paul says everyone falls under one of these. The, the Hagar represents those that, that when they try to do things themselves, take, uh, seek their own way, seek their own flourishing, define life for themselves, define good for themselves. And there is Sarah's children, uh, Isaac, the, the child of promise, right, of God's grace. They didn't earn it. They certainly didn't achieve it. They didn't make it happen. God provided for Abram and Sarah. And every person in here today is either relating to God by your works or by Christ's work. Trying to achieve God's ends through our means is never a good idea. And the message here is ultimately not just about how we live our lives day to day, but who we are as people. Where is our identity rooted? Where is our hope rooted? What is our faith for today, tomorrow, next month, next year, and beyond? Is it rooted in trusting God and his promises? Are we clinging to him, going, I have no good apart from you? Do we trust him that, as he said in uh, Isaiah, but now the Lord says, he who created you, O Jacob, who, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Do you live by that? Or do you constantly find yourself working and making your own way towards flourishing, defining it for yourself and trying to earn it for yourself and trying to somehow, if, if, if you can present yourself to God and to other people as a good person, then, then you can succeed. Let me tell you, that is an endless treadmill you will never wear out. People have lived their entire lives trying to be good, only to find they cannot reach the goodness of God. You can't earn a gift that's given to you. You can't contribute to a free gift. All you can do is receive it and live by it. And that's the invitation as I close today for each of us. I do want to challenge you. Maybe there's, a, if you're a Christian, is there a way in your life, something in your life right now that you are not trusting God for? You keep finding yourself trying to control things, trying to carve out your own way instead of trusting the way that God has for you. Maybe it's something that you're longing for. Maybe it's a good longing. Maybe it's something that you're dreaming of and God is not giving it to you right now and there can be a temptation to, to make that happen, to figure that out for yourself rather than to, to lean in harder, to trust more and to call out to the Lord, to the God who hears, right? I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, that's, that's what we want to do before we take communion today. Um, Jesus knows we struggle with that, and so he gives us the gift of uh, communion and what is called the Lord's Supper as a reminder, the bread of his body broken for us, a physical reminder to get through our thick physical skulls sometimes, that, that to be reminded that he has done it all, 
And the blood being the, the symbol as we take it into our bodies of his blood being poured out, cleansing us. God is not against you. He is for you. He is not judging you. You might feel like you're under wrath. You are not under wrath. Whatever suffering you are going through today, God has you in that moment to draw you deeper to himself. Take time to prepare yourself. Go take communion and joy. If you're not a Christian, this is the one thing we'd ask you to not take um, because this is for those who have crossed that threshold. But today, I want to encourage you, the invitation, this God who hears, hears you and sees you. He longs for you to know him and experience the joy and the life that come in him. And so over this next song, you can pray. Uh, you can seek the Lord. You can mark on your connection card if you want. Uh, we'll follow up with you. I'll be in the back uh, the rest of the service. And I would love to pray with you any way we can. Let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to respond together. If you're a Christian, anytime over this next song, you can take communion. Uh, make your way to the front. Go out through these doors and take communion outside. We're not allowed to have food or drink in here. Um, but let's pray together. God, as we look at Sarah and Abram and Hagar, we have, we have all certainly at times taken the reins of our lives and just decided to go our own way. And Lord, we have all reaped what we've sowed in various ways. Some are still carrying scars and pain from moments like that in their lives. And yet, God, you don't come with condemnation. You come with grace. You come with an invitation for us to lay down, lay down that shame, to lay down that guilt, to once again press in, experience your goodness, to walk by faith in you this world in this world. I pray that, Lord, our brothers and sisters across this room that need some encouragement right now, there are certainly some we know who are going through that moment, Lord, of just suffering, like waiting on you, and you're not answering their prayer right now. And I pray we would be quick to encourage each other, quick to walk alongside each other, to remind each other, as Abram should have, of your promises. As we take the bread and the cup, we thank you that you give this as a gift to remind us of the covenant you have made that is unbreakable, made by your body broken and your blood poured out once and for all time. In your name we pray.